Okay, today is December the 9th, and I'd like to remind everyone that tomorrow is our Christmas party. There will be plenty to eat, very good things to eat. And you can tell your neighbors, you can bring anybody you want, and it starts at 6.30, is that right? At 6.30. We always have fun, so you're all invited and bring someone if you want. Okay. You can come, if you're bringing food, come between 6 and 6.30 so we can get it all arranged and organized. I doubt that we'll actually eat at 6.30, but we'll give it a shot. (laughs) Okay, let's prepare ourselves and our... Normal fashion, our usual fashion, by having a few moments of silent prayer gives us the opportunity to rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this day, for your word, for the great system of perception. We can understand the whole realm of doctrine. We're thanking you that your word is alive and powerful. We need to meditate upon it. We are to apply it, depend upon it, and to share it with others. So we pray that you will help us to concentrate this evening, for we pray it in Christ's name, amen. If you'll turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we already had the introduction. This was probably the third thing written by Paul, the third epistle. And it's a little bit shorter than 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians has five chapters. This one has three. But just like 1 Thessalonians, it is jam-packed, full of doctrine. And a good portion of it is eschatology, study of the future things. <clears throat> Let's start with verse 1. Paul and Silvanus, which is Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you towards one another grows ever greater. Now, that's where we ended last time. and We didn't completely end, but that's where we were. And tonight we're going to continue with verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God, for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all of your 
persecutions and afflictions which you endure. I'm going to put the notes on the board so you can follow along. We ended with the the subject matter having to do with the the faith being greatly enlarged. You'll remember that that was a hopox legomena, which means it's only that word is only used one time in the entire Bible. Certainly, it's not something that just happens or that is automatic. Your faith does not increase just because you're a Christian, even though there are those who believe that that happens, it's not true. Faith in anyone or anything grows proportionally to the amount of knowledge one has towards the person or thing. Like faith, knowledge is not static either. It grows or diminishes. Just about everything in our life is not static. Isn't that true? Everything is constantly in changing and in fluid. 2 Peter 3.18 gives us information about how the knowledge grows, our knowledge grows, but growing grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.10 We pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. I remember I had you go to that verse and mark it because... That verse essentially encapsulates cap, cap, uh, why we are here. We are to live a life that is worthy of the Lord and to please Him. <clears throat> Very few people, even believers, are considerate of what the Lord wants. They're living for themselves. But we are to live in our way to please Him, bearing fruit, in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Now, this is where we pick up today. This will be lesson number two. Hebrews 11:6. And without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. I want you to turn to Hebrews 11:6, and I want you to underline and star that last part that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. You see, if you don't if you don't really believe that He is going to reward you, if, that He rewards those who eagerly seek Him, then the motivation seems to diminish and is eventually will die. So this is a great encouragement for all of us to keep on enduring, keep on growing, because He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. That's a great promise for us. I think that we... Went over this portion. Faith and knowledge are married. I remember saying that last time, but it's worth repeating. Whether you have faith, you have knowledge. Where you have knowledge, you usually have faith. You can't have one without the other. So faith cometh by hearing, and hearing from the word of Christ. So there you have faith and hearing, which is tantamount to knowledge in the same sentence. 
Oh, yeah, Luke eleven twenty seven and 28. I won't go over that again, but do you remember that was the, the feminist in the middle of the group when Christ was teaching? She interrupted him and said, Blessed, are, uh, blessed is the womb who bore you and the breast in which you nursed. And he, says, he said, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. So faith is enlarged when one experiences the faithfulness of God. It may also be enlarged through fellow believers who give encouragement to others. We all need encouragement, and one reason for the local church is for believers to encourage one another. And, of course, the way that is done mainly is through the Word. Here's an example, Acts 14:22, Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. One of the things that seems to stymie believers probably faster than anything is when they hit adversity. Whenever something happens, especially if it's undeserved, they think, well, this certainly isn't right. God must not care. He's not doing anything about it. The next thing you know, they're not trusting him anymore and they fall into the ditch. Faith towards the gospel is alive. It motivates spiritual growth, love towards others, and good works. You see, when you believe in Jesus Christ, you have a faith, you have a trust. And it is essentially alive, it's vibrant. Now, I'm not saying that measuring the faith, that if you have a little faith or or a whole lot of faith, uh, will determine whether you're truly saved or not. Because it's not the quantity or the quality of faith that results in eternal salvation. It's the object of faith always. But what I'm saying, however much faith there is there, it is alive. And it motivates spiritual growth, love towards others, and good works. That's three things that it does. However, if the faith goes unnourished, getting little or no intake of Bible doctrine, it can decline and even die. And we have some examples of it. James chapter 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? How many times have we gone over James chapter 2? Several times, right? You'll notice that this is addressing who? Brethren? Believers? And so this can't be a condition upon which their, their eternal salvation rests, that someone has faith but doesn't have any works, which means he's not really saved. No, this saved, which is... Sozo, in the Greek, means deliverance. It's the same word used for eternal salvation, but many times, probably most of the time, it's not uh, referring to eternal salvation. It's referring to just simple deliverance. And that's what it's referring to here. It goes on to say three verses later in verse 17, Even so, if faith has no works, it is dead being by itself. Dead. Can a dead faith produce good works? No. But does this mean that they're no longer saved? No. None of this has anything to do with eternal salvation. So we would say it is not 
soteriological at all. And then James 2.26 puts the icing in the, on the cake. It says, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So what I'm trying to show you is we were talking about in this verse how faith was greatly expanded with the Thessalonians. It grew. And faith does grow. But it doesn't only grow, it can also diminish. It can even die. And there are a lot of believers out there who are physically alive. They're even spiritually alive. They have a human spirit. They've been born again. But that faith is no longer active. It is dead. A lot of believers out there never pray. They never think about God. They don't have anything to do with things that people would call religious. They've essentially just tuned out. And that kind of faith cannot produce any works that would be divine good type of works. It can produce human good, which is unacceptable to God. So what I wanted to show you in this is that faith can go big, it can expand, or it can diminish. It can get smaller even to the point to where it's essentially as if it's non-existing, not producing anything. So if it's not doing what it was intended to do, what was, it, what was this uh, gospel, the faith of the gospel, motivate spiritual growth, love towards others, and good works? If it's not doing any of those things, what is it? It's good for nothing, isn't it? It's dead. We're, again, we're not talking about the faith in Jesus Christ at salvation. That accomplishes in total the very moment that you exert faith in Jesus Christ, you are eternally saved. That's not what this is talking about. But that type of faith, just think back. Some of you can remember the very date that you were saved. Some of you could say, well, that was uh, October the 12th, uh, 1962. I remember where I was. It was on a on a Sunday evening, and it was so-and-so-so, and you can just go through the whole nine yards, and you know exactly when it was. And when, when that occurred, don't you, don't you remember that you were very uh, tuned in with regards to spiritual things? A whole new world has opened up to you as far as uh, a security that you never had before. Over 40 things happens in that moment that God himself produces, but even in your own thinking, you're not the same. However, if that faith, if that motivation that started when you were born again, when you were regenerated, if that is not nourished, then it starts to, fall, it starts to falter. And I think that's one reason why so many believers, they, they've never grown because maybe they went to a crusade. Maybe they went to a, a Billy Graham crusade. And then they went back to a church that didn't teach the Word. And they never got any real spiritual nourishment, and they started, the faith inside them started to die. That's what James is talking about. Believers who are destined for heaven, but are not being experientially sanctified. They've used their volition making bad decisions 
And what eventually will happen is they will die the sin unto death. They will be at the judgment seat of Christ with great shame. They won't have any rewards or decorations. And they will miss out for all eternity. But they will still be in heaven. Of course, these verses were written to believers who are eternally secure. It's impossible for any believer's eternal salvation to be in jeopardy. They are referring to believers whose faith was not producing what it should have. They were believers who were not being experientially sanctified. That's all that those verses are talking about. You shouldn't have any, you shouldn't have any problem with James chapter 2 and with these verses. And you better have that nailed down because those who do not believe in Jesus Christ through faith alone, they think you have to add something to it. There are multitudes of people who think you have to add works to faith in order to truly be saved. They're going to come at you with these verses. And all you have to do is point out this is referring to believers who have been positionally and eternally sanctified, positionally. They have God's own righteousness and they have eternal life. And all that this is talking about is that they cannot be saved from the ridicule and scorn and a wasted life as long as their faith is dead. That's what that's talking about. We are justified before God by our faith we are justified before man by our works. And that's what this is talking about. And we are to love each other, <coughs> each one of you, towards one another, and it grows ever greater. And the love of each one of you towards one another grows ever greater. He's actually, he is boasting about this local church and about the Thessalonians. When a believer's faith is greatly enlarged towards God, his or her love for fellow believers goes right along with it. It's a corollary to it. Colossians 1.14 Since we heard of your faith in Christ and the love which you have for all the saints. You see, both of those go together. As your faith increases, so does your love towards other believers. Galatians 5.6 for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. 1 Thessalonians 1.3 Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love. Do you see faith and love in these verses? How they work together. Philemon 1.4-5 I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus Christ and towards all the saints. So what do you have in this verse? You have the faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and towards all the saints. You have your love and the faith. We'll, we'll get to a, 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 a conclusionary sentence of all this in a moment. 1 John 3.23, And this is His commandment that we believe that would be having faith in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. That's, that's two of the great commandments. Love God and who else? Others. 
Faith in God's Word must always precede love towards others, though. You all remember that? How many times have we gone over unconditional or impersonal love and personal love? Remember that? It's the love for God, it's knowing God and loving Him that produces the motivation to have love towards others. Of course, the filling of the Holy Spirit. Can you all see this? Whoa! Oh, wow. I'm getting, I bet you all are dizzy. I don't know what happened there. Yeah, it matches my shirt. Okay, here we are. <clears throat> so we see that as knowledge grows, it starts with knowledge. Notice that. As knowledge grows, faith grows. And in all this that we're talking about in this, in this whole paragraph is directed towards God. So as our knowledge towards God grows, our faith towards God grows. And as our faith grows, grace grows. That would be super grace. And as our grace grows, love grows. So we have knowledge towards God, which produces faith towards God. Faith towards God means we're going to have more grace and more grace, and the more grace we have, the more we love God. The opposite is also true, however. As faith declines, grace declines, I I left one out. I should have put, as knowledge declines, faith declines. As knowledge declines, faith declines. And as faith declines, then grace declines. And as grace declines, love declines. That's just happening in verse. But I had to put this statement in here. God's grace is always sufficient, but ignorant and are negative believers receive less of it. When I say that grace declines, I don't mean that God's grace is never sufficient. What I mean is if you have less knowledge, you're going to have less faith, less grace, and less love. But the less grace means you are going to get less of it. You're you're just going to be stuck with logistical grace. You'll never get the super grace blessings that would be those who, who are growing in knowledge and faith and grace and love. Here's another way of putting it. The more we know about God, the more we trust Him. And the more we trust Him, the more grace we receive. And the more grace we receive, the more we love Him. Does that make sense? But where does it start? It looks like it starts with knowledge, but actually where it starts is in your positive volition. If you want to know God... He's available. You can know as much as you want about God. And it's that positive volition that sparks the quest for knowledge of who and what He is. And then it go, then your faith automatically grows and so forth. Are you all ready for verse 4? Remember, the sentence, uh, there, this is one sentence, verse 3 through, what was it, 12, is one sentence. It has 213 words in it. At least it does in the Greek. And normally we go through a whole sentence. But I thought by the time we get down to the end of that 213th word, we might forget where we were. 
So on this particular one, I'm just breaking it down in verses, bites at a time. And we'll go through the verses that way. So verse 4 says, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Well, we have speak proudly of you. Therefore we speak proudly of you. This speaking proudly is eg kalkaomai. That's E-G-K-A-U-C-H-A-O-M-A-I. Ekakaomai. It's an infinitive, and it's the present middle. That means they were continuing to speak proudly about those who were in the Thessalonian church. And the middle voice means they were benefited by their own action. Actually, it's like prayer. When you pray for someone, those who you are praying for is benefited, but you are benefited also. And it's the same thing when you are praising someone. Speaking proudly is talking about praise. I've got this definition from the Complete Word Study Dictionary of the New Testament by Spirios Zodiades. And he says, uh, Some Greek lexicons deduce deduce this uh, from Achman, uh, Achen, which refers to the neck which vain persons are apt to carry in a proud manner. Aachen means the neck, and it means to carry it in a proud manner. You know what, how this is. If you're very proud, what do you do with your neck? Usually the nose goes kind of pointed up towards the sky. You're very proud. Have you ever seen someone when their children are have won an award or whatever, just watch it. Watch their neck and watch when, it, when they say, and this is so-and-so, so-and-so, and they go, their neck just kind of grows. It just kind of means to boast, to glory, exalt, both in good and a bad sense. We'll see that in a moment. Here's a verse about that neck business. In Isaiah 3, verses 16 and 17. Moreover, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are proud and walk with Heads held high. What, happen, what has to happen for the head to be held high? The neck's got to extend, doesn't it? And that's what that Greek word meant there, the neck being extended. Therefore, the, the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of, the, of Zion with scabs. So that was the Lord's remedy for the women who walked around with their head held high and you might think, well, I don't know. Isn't it okay to be proud? Absolutely. Is it okay to boast? Sometimes. That's what this is talking about. It is talking about boasting. Most of the time, boasting is used in a negative way, but not always. And this is one of those places where it is used not in a negative way, but in a positive way. So, you ladies, if you don't want to get scabs, scabs on your scalp, <laughs> uh, I say that tongue-in-cheek, <laughs> then we have a, a synonymy. This is from the Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, 10th edition, under this um, word here for um, speaking proudly or boasting. 
It, here are some, some synonyms. To boast, to brag, to vaunt, to crow, mean to express pride in oneself or one's accomplishment. Boast often suggests ostentation and exaggeration. Boast of every trivial success. But it may imply a claiming with proper and justifiable pride, for instance. The town boasts of one of the best museums in the area. So even in that, in that little bit there, we see that in this definition, we see that it can be justified, but many times it isn't. Usually the word boasting or speaking proudly is used in a negative way because some people like to boast about themselves. Ain't it the truth? Few things are harder to endure than a braggart. Have you ever been around someone that all they want to do is talk about themselves and all it was was about what they did and what, how, they, how great they are? That wears thin quickly, doesn't it? Here's a few, in, a few verses with regards to boasting in the negative context. Psalm 97.7, Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. 1 Corinthians 1.28 and 29, And the base things of the world and the despise God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. I love that portion of Scripture. This is in the first chapter of Corinthians. Because I've known people who boast about things, about themselves, that they didn't have anything to do with. And I've never seen it to where it wasn't this way, especially two areas that I am familiar with or used to be familiar with. One was in construction and one was in football, in sports. And you always would see some guy, some 6'8", 6'7", something like that, weighs 260 pounds, and they strut about. And they make a big deal how, how big they are. And I always thought, why are they boasting? They didn't have a thing to do with that. What did they have to do with being 6'8"? And they strut about and they look down on guys that are smaller. And that's what this scripture is about. What, what God does is take the people who are looked down on with regards to society. And those are the ones that he will use to confound those who are uppity and snobbish and think they know it all. And why does he do that? What does it say right to last? so that no man may boast before God. Some of the greatest people I know would never make the newspapers. They'll never be on any kind of list of the successful, the bold and the beautiful, the smart, the successful, none of that. But those are the ones that God uses so that no one can boast. How about this one? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. How many know that one? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works. What? So that no, no one will, may boast. No man may boast. So the whole idea is you can't boast. 
No one can strut about and say, <laughs> you know, well, I don't like to boast, but not only was I the most pious and the most faithful in my neighborhood, I won an award in the National Do-Gooder Test. <laughs> Thinking that's going to be going on in heaven? No. Why? Because none of us can boast. The only reason any of us will ever see the streets of glory is because of God's grace has nothing to do, we have nothing to boast about. In fact, it says if you want to boast about anything, boast about the Lord, which we'll see in a moment. Okay, those were the negative. Now we have how it's used in a good way. For instance, in Romans fifteen seventeen, Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. If you want to boast, you can boast all you want about Jesus Christ. You can boast about how God is ever faithful he never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He never does anything wrong. It's impossible for him to lie. It's impossible for him to not keep a promise. He can do anything he wants to do. And you could just go on and on. And God is up there saying, All right. Psalm 27. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 44, 8. In God we have boasted all day long, and we will give thanks to your name forever. And this is just a sampling. I could give tons of verses on this about boasting about God. So I, what I want you to see is there's a, there's a good boast and there's a bad boast. This is a good boast when you're boasting about others. The only, things I, the only thing I might do is kind of caution you parents, because when little Johnny wins a trophy... That's fine. Boast about him some, but don't make a career of it. Don't run your friends off to where every time they see you coming, they roll their eyes, oh, no, not the trophy. Just everything in moderation. Unfortunately, in most churches and families, there are more criticism and denunciations than there is encouragement and praise. We should ask ourselves, do I hear more praise or criticism in my church or family? Have you ever thought about that? How about your children? Do you criticize or praise your children more? Criticism comes real easy for anybody. It's very easy to criticize other people. It's one of the easiest things to do. But it, usually it doesn't help. Even constructive criticism is hard to take sometimes. But what they need, especially children, need praise as much as they need oxygen. Why does anybody think that their children are going to persevere and they're going to try their hardest if all they ever get is criticism? They need a little... A little praise goes a long way. You know, I know people, I know a few of my friends, one in particular. He's, he's my age. And he still struggles with the fact that his father never praised him. And he criticized him. This person went to 
Texas A&M with me. He played on the football team with me. And he really went on a baseball scholarship. But he also had a football scholarship, but he really wanted to play baseball. He, wasn't very, he, he was a kicker. He was an okay kicker. But his real forte was baseball. He was very good in baseball. He got the, the scholarship in football, but the baseball coach said, when you're up here, come see me, and I'll give you a scholarship also. That's the way it went down. But the football coach would not allow him to play baseball, even though they didn't, they didn't conflict in schedule or anything. And he was devastated by that. And he only went one year, and he left, and his dad never forgave him. Over 40 years ago, and he still struggles with it because all he got from his dad was criticism. I'm the other side of the coin. I played one year at Texas A&M. Back then, as a freshman, they had, they had a, if you were a freshman, you had to play on the freshman team. Then after that semester is over, then you would play with the varsity. There were 50 freshmen when I went to Texas A&M. And by the end of that season, once we were playing with the varsity, there were three freshmen out of that 50 that were starters on the varsity. I, I, I don't want to toot my horn, but I was one of them. But it wasn't for me. I didn't want to go to college to begin with, but I thought, well, I'll go give it a try because I might regret at least not trying. But I said, I'm going to go at least one year and give it a shot. I had passing grades. I was starting on the varsity, and I hated it. There's not, not that it what didn't have anything to do with A&M except that there was no girls there. <laughs> and I was in the, vars I mean, I was in the uh, military, in the Corps. So when you're in the Corps... I, I, I need to bring this short because I could tell you a lot more about I thought that A&M wasn't a real military, so I didn't have to clean my rifle or any of that kind of thing. <laughs> I had to learn the hard way that they took it seriously and that I better also. Anyway, there came a point in time where I decided this is not for me. I'm going to change my location. I'm going to do something else. And I had to do the same thing that my friend had to do, face his dad. First of all, I had to face the coach. And I went to the coach, and I told him, um, this is my last semester here. Uh, this, I gave it a shot. It's not for me. I'm going to move on. He says, but you're wearing the maroon jersey. Don't you know that there are guys that would give their right arm to wear that jersey? I said, I, maybe there is. I just do not have the desire. He said, well, he said, have you ever thought what your dad would think about that? He said, it might devastate your dad. And I was stopped in my tracks, and I thought, oh. So I went back to the dorm, and I remember I was feeling so low. And I, I don't know whether they called me or I called them, but I was speaking to my parents over the phone and I hung up and I got a knock on the door and it was them. Now they were in Houston and I was in Bryan or 
College Station. I guess I was so low that I was just the time. I had no sense of time. They didn't say they were coming. They just heard in my voice how absolutely devastated I was. I didn't tell them everything that was going on, but they knew there was a problem. That's the kind of parents I had. They showed up. And they said, we need to talk. So we went over to the administration building, and I just um, poured my heart out to my dad. I said, I hate it here. I don't want to be here. I went to the coach and told him that I was no longer going to play. I wasn't going to stay at NM. I was going to do something else that I really wanted to do. He said, but it, he said, it might devastate you. Rather, <clears throat> rather than criticize me, he said, I am proud of you for who you are. You're my son. He said, whatever you want to do, I will support you. I will help you. I can't tell you what that meant. When I left there, my feet weren't touching the ground. It was like floating on air. A little bit of praise. A little bit of support. So I went back the next day to tell the coach that I had talked to my dad and that he was all right with it. And he said, well, you know, I was going to push you for All-American and all that. It's probably a bunch of smoke. But I said, it doesn't matter. I'm going to do something that I really want to do. And I left. And I've never regretted it. Somewhere along the way, college degrees can help a person. And I'm not against college degrees. But I think a person has to do what they really have a desire to do. And that's what I did. My whole point in telling you these things is that I never suffered the trauma and the heartbreak and the struggle that my friend went through because my dad did not criticize me or bring me down. He truly loved me. He demonstrated that by praising me and encouraging me. He said, what do you think I would feel like if you got hurt on the field and you were out there playing just for me? He said, I want what you want. Tell me, looking at it, but it's like this time. Because never, literally, sometimes criticism, even look thought, the thought without telling us. We can do it. Our child was in This church coaches deep in us, so let's do. We will do that. Amen.